You mean that it's based on equality? Inequality? Or is it based on inequality? And therefore, unless you can get rid of the caste system, you don't think social system got to be out there. I'm quite prepared to say, well, it will take some time for the social structure to be altered if you want to do it in a peaceful way. Yes, you see? But then somebody must be making the effort. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Minor Feelings. I'm your host, Divya Kartikeyan. The past few weeks have seen an outrage in India over the rape and murder of Manisha, a 19-year-old Dalit woman in Hathras, Uttar Pradesh. Dalit here refers to a person of the lowest rung of the caste system in India. Caste is a social structure that has plagued India for centuries now and continues to in small and extremely large ways every day. Upper caste communities often use this structure to establish hegemony and dominance over lower caste communities in pretty much every sphere, be it education or governance. While the agency a Dalit woman has over her body shouldn't be any different from what an upper-caste woman has over hers. Manisha's and many other Dalit women's plight has proved that it's sadly not the case, even in 2020. While there's a lot to read about this that's out there, I wanted to explore what it means for women Dalit rights activists in India, making their voices known right now. To be on innumerable panels, write pieces, recount their lived experiences and traumas. The newsletter issue with this podcast has some excellent voices from the front lines of this fight. Resources on what to read, where to donate, and how to be a good ally to Dalit communities. So I urge you to read it along with this podcast. I talked to Christina Danraj, a writer and advisor for Smashboard, a nonprofit based in Paris and New Delhi. She was formerly a consultant for Hashtag Dalit Women Fight and co-founder of the Dalit History Month. On this episode, we discuss what it means to pass the mic, the inherent problems with that term, why it's important to be anti-caste, and how to be a good ally. Listen in. So thank you so much for joining me, Christina. It's great to have you on the podcast, and uh, especially during this extremely difficult time right now when everybody is sort of being asked to write or talk about this extensively. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So um, uh, I just want to ask you first off, um, this violence against Dalit women has been happening for years, for centuries now. And I'm just curious to know what kind of a onus or a 
burden have you personally felt in terms of having to explain this over and over again to journalists to uc communities on panels has there been a sense of burden at all in terms of that well the short answer to your question is yes indeed there has been a burden and you do feel like the honor somehow is resting on your shoulders to tell people to prove to people that caste manifests in such a brutal agonizing manner right uh i but but i must confess that even as a dalit woman uh fairly privileged or rather someone who has accrued privilege uh in the last few years even i was not as aware of these atrocities as people as i am now perhaps right so i do believe that there is some bit of um exposure that we all need to have and some kind of uh journey that we all need to take in order to get to a point of um get to a point of feeling informed or being informed and and i went through that journey uh maybe 6 years ago when i when i met tenmuli sandar rajan and i got to know that you know she was working with asha uh kothal in uh, dalit women fight at that time uh, they were called as all india dalit mahila adhikar manch and i got to know the kind of amazing work these ground level activists were doing with dalit women with dalit women survivors of sexual violence of caste based sexual violence and that's when i even got to know and i was able to familiarize myself with the magnitude and the scale of um of of the of the atrocity um that was happening to our women um you know on an everyday basis so till that time i was i i myself was quite i i wasn't as aware as i am today um so to have gotten from there to here and in all of these 6 to 7 years i think yes there have there there have been many many instances where um people would be like how are dalit women affected by caste and invariably um even that very question uh would demand that you give them an answer by saying that but didn't you know that so many people are being killed and so many women are being sexually assaulted did you look at the statistics you know that that has been the pattern essentially in my in my for me personally individually and it it has also been what i have witnessed uh in the literature as well whether it's media articles whether it is you know journal publications whatever it be in order to prove that caste exists or caste manifests in in this format against dalit women people tend to quote data statistics data or statistics or um some kind of evidence pertaining to how dalit women are being affected and this conversation repeats itself over and over and over again every time a new savarna person or a new upper caste person has this question in their mind right so uh yeah i mean this has been happening over the last many years and uh, right now when uh, the furor happened with the the case in hatras um, i went through a very familiar feeling of hopelessness but also a lot of fatigue 
because I was seeing um, these conversations on social media and I was seeing how Dalit women were being hounded with questions from very well-established journalists who have access to all the information, much more information than any of us can possibly have. And they were asking questions like, why would you say uh, caste plays a role in this rape? Or why would you uh, presume that this is caste-based sexual violence? And the Dalit woman invariably was expected to provide an answer to that. It was a very fatigue-inducing exercise. And this fatigue, you know, sort of, um, from what I can see, at least, has sort of plagued a lot of Dalit women activists at this moment. And it has been for a long time, but especially now, since the spotlight is on you, there's there's a spotlight is also on, you know, being progressive and being liberal and being woke and sort of having people uh, to come on and talk about this. Do you feel there's a sense of... Um, performance in this passing of the mic that can be a little insincere as well from UC communities? Well, I have a problem with the very statement passing of the mic. You know, I think I think what has happened is that India has been catching up to this woke space that exists elsewhere, right? P- p- particularly in the United States. And that language has been borrowed and for good reasons, maybe. But also, um, you know, it has also been borrowed quite, if I can use the word, lazily. You know, there's not been a lot of work that has been put in to understand why that uh, why that phrase is being used and what is the history behind that phrase and how should that be um, relevant and how how should that be applied within the Indian context, which happens to be dominated by caste? So when we talk, when we say passing the mic, we are presuming that someone else is already holding that mic and they are simply passing it onto another person out of a feeling of benevolence, you know, out of a out of, out of compassion, you know. Hey, you know what? We've been holding this mic for so long. Here, have it, you know. But that is not what we can be dependent on like right like how can how can you know huge populations of marginalized communities caste oppressed communities be dependent on an arbitrary benevolence of an oppressor to just pass the mic for 10 minutes in a show that lasts for a uh, for 10 hours right so this to me this this very phrase of passing the mic and how that has been understood within the Indian woke context, to me, that is problematic in and by itself. The mic has to belong to marginalized communities. The uh, We have to get off the stage, in fact, because there's no performance here. Uh, th- there needs to be a complete overhaul in the way we understand politics, in the way we understand activism all of that. And, and, and for that, I take inspiration from my women who are working on the ground, who are doing, you know, incredible work with people, with communities, 
um, trying to get help for them in the form of legal aid, um, in the form of mental uh, and psychological support, monetary aid, compensations, all kinds of things that you can think about. That's the work that 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 really needs to happen, and that's where all of our energies and uh, you know time and labor must be focused on. But this is not to say that. We should not be having a discourse or we should not be intellectualizing. We should not be constant. That, that's equally important. But there, the, the, this, the, the, the performance, um, I mean, I think, I think your question is absolutely fantastic. Yes, there is this feeling of we performing for someone. And this audience, unfortunately, happens to be a digital social media based audience. And everything that we put out there unfortunately, is intricately linked to the way capitalism, uh, linked to the way digital capitalism works, right? So if I put some tweet out there, it it will garner a certain number of likes. And even my political discourse and my political uh, articulation is very much targeted towards that um, digital audience, towards that um, that recognition from this community of woke, pe- woke people, quote unquote. And that's how I see this whole, the politics of passing the mic sort of being relevant there and also uh, irrelevant for a, for, a, for a Dalit person because after a point, passing the mic does not make sense at all. Yeah, it's pretty much like saying, you know, um, I'm going to give you the mic right now. And then you talk for about, like you said, talk for about 10 minutes and then that's enough. Pass it back. Like we're done. We're done. This is the new cycle is sort of like it, it just moves like that also. And yeah, and I I mean, when you talk about also um, the um, mental and psychological sort of impact that uh, this has, I'm wondering how much the of the Indian media or forget the Indian media or media anywhere, um, you know, our UC communities, how much are we paying attention to the mental and emotional fatigue of um, Dalit women and Dalit communities at this time? I'm just wondering if you've had um, you people from UC communities reach out to you and ask you if you're doing okay. Well, yeah, they did. I think with with respect to when 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 Hatras happened, a lot of people from upper caste communities reached out to me, reached out to several of us. You know, um, some of them I knew quite personally, and so it was it was all right because we all understood that this was a tough time. Um, and I I genuinely believe that they were reaching out to me uh, from a place of friendship and from a place of genuine care. But there's also a lot of performance. A performative sort of a, a, a sort of a thing attached to even that gesture, right? I want to say that it's a grace gesture. Um, I do maybe at some level believe that it is it is emerging from the right place, but unfortunately, we are also living in a time and age where we cannot completely trust that gesture to be something that is genuine. It, it's highly possible that it is it is performative. Um, and I also truly do believe that this gesture of checking in on somebody only when something as gruesome as this happens and it makes it to the uh, popular mainstream media is not going to do much in changing or 
challenging the status quo of the ones that you're checking in on. Right? Instead, what I would ask of, and perhaps you can also add to it, uh, since you do belong to an upper caste social location, is that upper caste people should know that the the, the best way to uh, rectify the situation is to have conversations with their family, with their friends, with, in their communities. That is the best thing that they can do as individuals. And if you are people in positions of power and influence, you can do a lot more than just have conversations as well. You can actually, you actually have the power to change structures, however minute and small it might seem today. But if you were to, you know, go back to your personal lives, your professional lives and your political lives and assess for yourself, what is it that you can exactly do in order to annihilate caste and keep at it till the time you die, keep at it through your lifetime, it's going to be a different world tomorrow. In a way that your children and the next generation wouldn't have to do such, you know, gestures of just checking in on another person and, and, and seeing if they are doing fine. You would have done so much more than just check in and check in on another person, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and um, this this will also, in a sense, the onus on you to constantly explain and you know uh, talk about what's what you're going through is. I think it's done. I think we all know. Like. <laughs> How much more do we have to keep asking this question, especially journalists and people in the media and, you know, uh, upper caste feminists and activists? Um, there's there's always this platform that they sort of occupy in terms of um, we are highlighting these issues and we are highlighting this. Is there a, is there a strong power dynamic in that sense itself? Absolutely. I think it goes back to the logic of what we spoke with respect to passing the mic, right? This is, this is, this is the problem mm. with discourses on inclusion. Because you're presuming that there's somebody in the center of the circle who has power, who has positionality, and who's deciding who needs to be included and who needs to be excluded, who's drawing that circle into which somebody needs to be included who's already decided what are the parameters of the people who are inside that circle and who are outside that circle. Right? Right. So this thing of we are highlighting, we are giving space, we are passing mm. the mic, we are being inclusive, how should we be more inclusive? All of this presumes a power differential. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Setting yeah. the agenda... Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and this is the problem. Um, you know, this, this is what anti-caste work is all about, whether you are an upper caste person or whether you are a casteless person, whoever you are, if you are involved in anti-caste work and not just as an activist, as just as one human being who recognizes that caste is a problem and we're going to figure this one out and we're going to work towards its annihilation. This is what that work is all about. You need to dismantle power structures. You need to dismantle that very definition and an understanding of how power looks like and who needs to hold on to that power. 
And that question right. will lead you to answers that will surprise you. And that answer for sure is not passing the mic. That answer for sure is not about more inclusion. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and you brought up um, anti-caste. I'm mm. very interested in trying to understand. There's been a lot of sort of debate around that term where people say mm. there are um, there are uh, Dalit activists who basically say you cannot, as a UC person, truly be anti-caste because mm. it's just, it's literally in the mm. fabric of your existence right now as a UC mm. person. So I'm just mm. wondering what... Um, what are your thoughts on the idea of being anti-caste and that the terminology, everything? I mean, um, I believe in the terminology. That's one thing. The second thing is, you know, Dalit activists and Dalit intellectuals aren't a, a homogeneous monolithic category, right? So all of us have different kinds of opinions and different kinds of um, you know, suggestions to make and different viewpoints and perspectives. So I, I, I I won't even attempt to explain where uh, those intellectuals or those perspectives are coming from. So I I, I will refrain to re- refrain from doing that. Sure. Instead, I'd probably uh, you know go back to Baba Sahib Ambedkar, who did believe that anti-caste work is not just something that that the Dalits or caste oppressed communities would have to do. If I if I can understand Baba Sahib right. It is all of us have to be together in the struggle and we have to do anti-caste work in solidarity and collaboration and partnership. It has to happen. But the format or the ways in which we would do it, who's got to make the decisions, who would not, who will be the mm. leaders, who won't be, who's going to put in the labor, who's going to be the, um, you know, the decision maker. All of that needs to be sorted out. That right. needs to be figured out and it is being figured out i think i would imagine that it is being figured out in different ways in different circles in different states in different um, you know situations it, it that that work is happening but there's also what we are witnessing on social media in 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 the name of public discourse which which uh, we wrongly sort of think is indicative of everything that's happening out there in the real world. I don't think what we see on social media is entirely indicative of what really takes place within movements and within circles and within activist groups. I think there's a lot more that's happening behind the scenes than what we get to see. Right, right. But but if we were to, uh, if an upper caste person calls themselves, calls themselves, you know, uh, anti-caste, mm-hmm. I I wouldn't have a problem with that, but I think what the upper caste individual or a collective needs to realize is when they say anti-caste, what do they exactly mean by that, right? Hmm. You can you can be anti-caste or you can call yourself anti-caste by but still know and understand how much of a privileged person you are in your positionality and in your in your in your in your social location i mean all of that processes can happen inside of you outside of you around you while you still call yourself anti caste and you can also do that by not performing or not in a performative manner right mm-hmm. uh, if i were personally for me if i were to meet an upper caste person and they say you know christina i am anti caste 
at a personal level, at an individual level, I will feel very assured because right. I can do, I can trust this person to at least begin a friendship or to at least have that person in solidarity with my life and with what I do. How that person is going to later be, how that person is going to display their privilege and manifest their privilege and and hurt me and uh, you know, screw me is is of a different is 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 another thing. But sure. when that person takes that stand and says, "This is who I am," I think that paves the way for better relationships and better collaboration and better solidarity. But it doesn't obviously stop with just calling oneself anti-caste, which is why I I want to emphasize on the work that needs to go underneath behind. That work needs to take root, like true anti-caste work needs to take root within an individual and within a collective for true annihilation of caste. Right. And it's it's a start. It's a great start, but there's much more that needs to be done from then on. Absolutely. So I want to move to sort of asking you about also what what can non-Dalit allies do that live in the US, live in other countries, what can what can we do in terms of understanding, you know, this these dynamics? Well, I think there's a lot of stuff that's already there, right? In terms of understanding. Um, all that you have mm-hmm. to do is to just get the right kind of literature, watch the right kind of um, Insta lives and watch, uh, follow the right kind of people. Um, you know, all of all of the stuff that's already there is is available for public consumption. So uh, as far as understanding dynamics is concerned, I think there's a lot of material that's already out there and people can do it uh, and people should do it if right. you have an interest in it. Uh, But non-Dalits is also a very, very broad category. Um, And when we say, you know, non-Dalits in the US and Europe, again, that just opens up a whole new, um, you know, uh, just many, many uh, ethnicities and marginalized communities and populations and all of it. So I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that Dalits are um, the most marginalized community in the entire world. I, I, I don't believe that and I won't say that. Um, I think it really depends right. on who you are, right? And what social location you come from. What can upper caste people do who are living outside in the diaspora? I think, I think we've, we've spoken enough about it uh, and we have already, uh, you know, mentioned that they have to go back into their personal, professional and political lives and really assess what is it that you can do in order to uh, bring about structural change, not just do performative gestures. I think, I think that is, that is clear. Uh, but as far as, you know, other populations are concerned, for example, black black populations or Latino populations or, you know, other marginalized populations, other sisters, other, other, uh, you know, allies. And, you know, I, I think what I envision, it's, it's not so much of a, you know, a list of things that they must do more like what I envision is, you know, is, is 
transnational solidarity, where we are all able to find common right. ground uh, and unite in this fight against structures, but also really appreciate each of our unique positionalities and, and also be ready to talk about what internal hierarchies we ourselves have, right? Uh, for example, and and you know you 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 are a lot more familiar uh, about this than I do, you know, than I am. Like you have people of color communities in the U.S., and I don't think, or maybe there is there is a lot of dialogue that's happening, but I feel like at least from the location that I come from, when I was living in Beijing or when I'm living here in Netherlands there are no, not enough conversations that are happening within people of color communities where we have our own internal hierarchies and internal dynam- internal dynamics you know as to how we operate uh, from our own specific positionalities i envision a time where we will be willing to talk about all of that as well and not always place ourselves mm. in relation to the white uh, supremacist or in relation to white communities, right? So I think that's definitely something that that right. we can open up a dialogue about. And and I do believe there is a lot of power that will come from solidarity between um, Dalit women and Black women, between Dalit queer groups and Black queer groups. And, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of power in it. Um, Dalit women and Elam Tamil communities, I think, I think there's just a whole lot of um, possibilities that exist for us to discover and I, I just wish we get there sooner. That was Christina Dhanaraj, writer and advisor for Smashboard, which is a non-profit based in Paris and New Delhi. I hope you learned and enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for tuning in and see you next time.